0: Uh, as you might have caught then from the uh, children's message uh, we're talking about the bible we are in a new series called read study and love the bible um, let's start with a story though it's actually i'm going to quote another sermon in the sermon as we start david Nival, uh, he was very uh, important in the early days of our denomination the covenant uh, at the second annual meeting he gave a, a sermon in 1886 where he pointed out, and this goes really well with what we just heard in the children's sermon, uh, that if you kind of do a a survey, he said, of other religious books within the world, you're going to see that uh, some general common themes, that many other religious books in the world have cultural importance, obviously from where they come from. But he said, as well, you kind of notice that a great many of them were written for those who were learned or elite or kind of the upper classes of wherever they come from. It's not all, but a great many of them, I would agree with him, would fit in that category. And so he, he said this, this is quoting David Nival in 1886, he said, "...considered merely as a book, entirely apart from all claims of divine inspiration, the Bible is a pearl of books, the book itself. And perhaps the most striking and wonderful thing about this book is that with its comparably high and sublime content, it bears an almost inescapable expectation of becoming a people's book. That is to say, it's for everyone. It's a lot of words to say that, but he's getting at some good point. Now, the Bible is divinely inspired. He claims that, I claim that, we claim that as the denomination. That's a, a belief that we have based on scripture. But he's stepping back and just saying, this book is intended for everyone. Everyone. That's what God has done in Scripture. It's divinely inspired. It's meant for everyone. And the Bible, when we get down to it, is a gift. It is a gift given to us by the living God. And that alone should be cause for thanks, shouldn't it? A gift given to us by the living God. And it's given to us that everyone would be able to be shaped and changed by this gift, by His Word. That's what we're looking at over the next bunch of weeks. And we do no favors when we come to the Bible and think that it's just a human book as one among many, it then becomes dispensable. And we do no favors if we act as if this will ask nothing of us when we come to it. And so the Bible is a gift. We're given it to read and study. And there's joy to be found in the pages of Scripture. I hope some of you have that experience as well. There's joy to be found there in the pages of Scripture and true life is to be lived as in response to these pages. And it only comes with being changed through God's word, through the Bible. That's what we're focusing on. Let me give us uh, the kind of the structure of the terms that we're using, some which are in the title of the series and some which aren't. And then we're going to turn to Psalm 119, starting at verse 57, if you're following along today, and I invite you to do so. We're talking, when we say read, study, and love, the Bible, when we say read, I'm referring to a devotional reading of Scripture. And we're not going to cover the depths of these this week. We're going to cover them in, uh, in turn as we go through this. But devotional reading of Scripture. It's, it's the weight of reading Scripture as a daily or regular regimen so that we're shaped by the Word. But you're not sitting there with several commentaries and articles and doing Word studies when you do devotional reading. You're reading it as many of you already have this uh, setup where you read it in the morning or at night or sometime, you know, at lunchtime or whatever, and maybe you have a devotional that goes with it. That's all good. And you're doing this just to, to have the word wash over you is what you're doing. And, and you could liken it to that. You know, if you build a sandcastle on the seashore and the waves come in at the end of the day, what do they do? They methodically roll over it and shape it back to the shore that was earlier. That's what's happening when God's word washes over us. Over time, it just shapes us as we allow it. That's devotional reading. Now, when it comes to study, what we're talking about there is digging deeper, and we could call it skill in interpretation. There's a fancy word that goes with that we won't get into now, but skill in interpretation— that is, we're, we're trying to really understand the context and everything that goes with it. And as you study it, your devotional life is going to get better. And as your devotional life gets better, your study life is going to get better. They work together. But as you study scripture, you notice different details that you wouldn't have noticed before, especially if you read it, you know, just in the morning, you're reading it, and you're reading it maybe quicker than you would. And that's fine in devotional reading. But I liken it to, if we're going to stick with our sea metaphor, if you've ever stood on a shore where there's tide pools, on on the ocean, and you look in a tide pool, if you just quickly glance, you see very little movement, even though there's potential for movement. But if you stand there for five minutes, oh, you see lots of movement all over the place in a tide pool. And in study, that's what we're doing. We're discovering how to see more and more and more as we sit with the text longer and longer and longer. And as you study, you're struck by the deeper implications of God's word. So there's a difference between those two, and they complement each other. You've got to do both, not just one or the other, in order for them to work together. When we talk about love, loving God's Word, I hope it's both something that inspires us to read it, but also a byproduct of reading it. It could be one or both. But reading God's Word should bring joy. It really should. It should bring something deeper than just simple happiness. It should bring joy that comes from the Lord. And the point that we could make today simply is reading God's word should change you. When you get right down to it, when we encounter it, whether it's devotional or whether it's study, however we encounter it, it should change you as we encounter God's word. And what undergirds all of this is a word that we use a lot within church life, and that is discipline. There should be a discipline to how we approach scripture, whether it's devotional reading or study of God's word. Discipline is simply uh, an athletic word by background. It means to train. That's all it means. But when you think in athletic terms, um, if you're on a team and you have a coach, what do you call the coach? Anybody? What do you call the coach? Coach, right? It's the same everywhere. Coach. And when we think of discipline, if we're thinking of it specifically applied here, when, when it comes to reading God's word, just like under a coach, there's a sense of direction and also authority that comes with that position. You're going to do what the coach asks you to do because that's what's going to make you better at doing what it is. Uh, with discipline, if you're an athlete, you're going to train. You're going to do the things that make you better. You're going to throw more free throws so you get better at it when you're actually in a live game. You're going to lift weights and do the things that strengthen you. That's what disciplining is, but when we apply this issue of the idea of coach there, we're actually applying the issue of authority to the study and reading of God's word, which needs to be there in order for anything to happen, right? We're only going to be positively changed by God's word if we live under its authority. That's the only way it happens, right? Because otherwise, it's just a book like any other book, and it's dispensable. It needs to be indispensable, and we need to live under the authority of the one who's given the word, God, as we read it. Otherwise, we'll never be changed, and never, certainly never positively changed, and get joy out of it. With that in mind, let's look at Psalm 119, and we're going to read all of 57 through 64, and then we'll dig into a couple parts of it. Here it says, You are my portion, Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight, I will rise and give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend of all who fear you to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, Lord. Teach me your decrees. It begins by saying, you are my portion, which is where the title of the sermon comes today, that we should reflect on the fact that God should be our portion. When that term is used in the Old Testament, it often refers to a land allotment, but not always. So Israel gets the the 12 tribes, enter the promised land, and they get a portion of the land. That's often how it's applied. Here it's a little different. It can also be applied as your daily substance, uh, that is the things for daily life, for living, daily bread, that kind of thing that's really more of the edge that it's got here you are my portion the thing I'm dependent on you is what it's getting at I'm dependent on you without you I don't exist nor can I continue to exist in this world I'm dependent on the living God you are my portion now the dependent factor there are a couple ways that we can then study God's word a little bit and look at a couple other places to get a little insight on this if we look back at Numbers 18.20, you see portion used in that land allotment way that tells us something about this passage and being dependent on God. In Numbers 18.20, after people, people are supposed to enter the promised land, this is the instructions for entering the promised land, it says, the Lord said to Aaron, you are to have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites." The 12 tribes, as I said, as they entered the promised land, they got an allotment of land as they entered in. But one tribe, the tribe of Aaron, the Levites, they were the the people who took care of the tabernacle, eventually the temple. They didn't get an allotment of land. They were supposed to be taken care of by the other 11 tribes. God says, I'll take care of you. And the way that works practically through the other 11 tribes, God working through the other 11 tribes, when they'd come to the tabernacle, they'd give a portion of whatever's being sacrificed to the Levites they are dependent on the other 11. So we are dependent on God. And when we're dependent on other people, I don't know what your experience is, but if you know somebody's dependable, you're good to go. But if there's even an inkling of doubt, what does it do to us? It causes anxiety within us, fear that somebody's not going to come through. It's hard to be dependent on other people when we have to trust them. And that can happen we can think, can I really be dependent on God? Is God really my portion? We can have a sense of anxiety. Psalm sixteen five, I think is a good reminder using the same term. It kind of uses both of the portions in a sense. It says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Isn't that a nice thing to memorize, I think? God, you make my lot secure. I'm dependent on you and I can trust you. You will take care of what's going on. I remember early on in our marriage, Stephanie and I, when we were living in the super expensive corner of Canada we were in, um, and had work, she was working three jobs, I was working one job and a full-time student, um, we were, you know, we'd made, make ends meet, but of course you don't have much money when you're first married, and so we, we didn't. And uh, I remember there'd be times when you get everything covered, you got all the bills covered, everything's good, we've got food, and that's about it. And then, uh, then the random extra bill comes in for $19.26 or something like that. Something small, but just enough to be like, really? Really, that's out of what? You know, where does it come from? And then all of a sudden in the same slot of mail comes a check from grandma for $19.26 or something. It was something always so random when it happened. And you're like, there's no way anybody could have planned on that, right? It was the exact amount needed. And you're just like, God, you're my portion. Does your life show that you believe God is your portion? And that can happen in little ways, right? If you think about it. How how can my life demonstrate that God is my portion? That can come in little ways. Maybe it's as simple as the saying grace at meals. That is an important way that we show, okay, God, you're my portion. This actually is something that I'm dependent on you for. Even though our, our own effort in that kind of thing comes to it, I have no effort without God giving me the ability to have effort. Right? That grace really matters. It's not just me that earned it, it's God that gave me the ability to earn it in the first place. Do you have an attitude of gratitude? An attitude of generosity towards others, or are you withholding? That can demonstrate if God is your portion or not. Because we live out of anxiety or fear instead of generosity, which is a chosen trait. It's not something that you're simply born with. Do you turn to God when things are going well? Not just when things are going poorly that can demonstrate that you believe that God is my portion. Or even when things are going really difficult, when you do have that anxiety and the fear and things press around you, are you able to be obedient and Christ-like in those instances, or do you give in to the baser instincts of anger and bitterness and envy and consumption? Does your life show that you trust God as your portion? Let's turn to verses 58 and 59 as we both study and devote ourselves to the word this morning. It says, I've sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Let's hang with that verse for a moment. I have sought your face. Can I tell you some good news this morning? God is a seeking God. Isn't that good news? God is a seeking God. You can study other ancient religions and even some modern ones and discover that in a lot of cases, especially if you study Greek mythology, that's a good example. The goal of the gods is to have as much distance from human as possible, not closeness to them. And you see that all throughout other religious systems, but God intentionally created us, and wants to be close to us. Isn't that a remarkable thing? The God of the universe who doesn't need us made us and says, I want a relationship with you. And he seeks it out. Our God is a seeking God. I have sought your face, though, is on our part. I'm seeking you too, God. I know you're seeking, but I'm seeking you. And let's point out the reality. There are a lot of times when a lot of people feel very distant from God. And I'm just going to guess that you have at some point in your life felt distant from God. I have too. I've had those moments. And sometimes they're seasonal. It happens. And if you're in one of those seasons right now and it's just a short season, don't beat yourself up. It's just a period of time. Things can be done. You can seek God's face. You can get there. But you don't want to let it become long-term. Then you've got a problem. And then at that point, you absolutely have to get up and get moving. When we feel distant from God, just like we feel distant from another person, sometimes it can be easy for us to give in and just say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to back off. Whenever we have relational tension with other people, I don't know if you ever feel this, but sometimes it feels easier to just walk away, even if you're close to them. But instead of doing that, if you actually want to get close to them, you come closer to them, even though it seems counterintuitive. The same is true with the living God. When we feel far from him, we actually should get closer to him. "I, I have sought your face the psalmist says, so should we do the same thing. I should seek your face, God, especially when I feel a longing and a distance from you. And in seeking God's face, it shows something on our part. It shows on our part that we have an interest in God's character, that we really want to be close to him. We want to know who God is by seeking his face. In seeking God's face, it shows attentiveness to God's presence, that we want to know what God wants and what God wants from us in that closeness and it shows a need for repentance and change if we seek God's face, which is what takes us to the next verse, right? If we go on to verse 59, I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. Laws, that's what he's turning it to, your word, basically. I have considered my ways. Now, this is one of those places where a quick reading or study Um, I can tell you from one of my own mess-ups this week that you've got to pay attention to the the details. I actually started working on this point of having written down, uh, you know, by hand, I have considered your ways, but it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say I've considered your ways. It says I've considered my ways. That's kind of dangerous, isn't it? I've sought your face, God, and now I'm examining myself to see how I stack up against the living God. I don't know if anybody else thinks that feels a little bit, you know, intense, but that's a pretty big deal. I have considered my ways. Since I already brought up uh, the history of our own denomination, let me bring it up again in the history of the covenant. Before we were a denomination, our grandfather, if you will, Paul Peter Waldenstrom, um, famously had a number of conversations about the atonement and wrote some things about it. So the atonement is, what did Jesus do on the cross and through the resurrection to put us back in right relationship with God? What was actually accomplished through that? At-one atonement, that's what it means. And in one particular case in the mid 1800s, a little more late 1800s, Waldenstrom was, uh, he was Swedish, he was speaking to other Swedish pastors at the time talking about the atonement. And the popular theory, I'm going to shorthand all of this for you. The popular theory was that in, in sin and through sin, uh, God had moved away from humans through, the, through what happened with sin. That's the shorthand. And that through the cross and the resurrection, God was able to move close again. To which Wallenstrom, talking to a couple other pastors, said, oh, where is it written? And they all chuckled and laughed and said everywhere and walked away. To which Waldenstrom then spent the next two years looking in and he said, I found nowhere in Scripture where God moved away from us. I found plenty of examples of where our sin made us move away from Him. You see, and that's the problem, right? That's the problem. And by the way, that's when we talk about where is it written in the covenant, that's where it comes from. That's what he asked. Where is it written? They all laughed. So that's why we still ask that today. That's why we're doing what this is a quintessentially covenant sermon series right now. Where is it written basically? we need to seek his face because God didn't move, we moved away from him in sin. We need to examine our ways because we're the ones who are wrong and need to be made right and holy through the living God. I've considered my ways. Why? Because I'm wrong. That's why. And only you are right, God. Thinking along those same lines and sort of as we take in the word and considering our ways, when I was doing youth work as a youth pastor about 15 years ago, one of the youth that was part of the group had, you know, had grown up in the church, knew the stories, and he told me that. Yeah, I could tell he was bored. He's like, I know all the stories. I've heard it all. He was really checked out. He came to everything. but He was really checked out when it came to the lessons and the things we were doing. I've heard it all. That's what he told me. But the di- distinction is he hadn't received any of it, right? He had heard it all, but had not taken any of it in. I've considered my ways I actually have to take in what's wrong and take in the word and digest it in order for something to happen now the danger of this series I want to point out and we'll come back to some of these the danger of talking about a a series where and by the way this read your bible there's some extra ones John Harris who does the church plant that's meeting in our facility later likes to make buttons he made some and I was like "Ooh, those are cool so if you want one take one the danger of this series though saying something simple like this like read your bible it can actually be demotivational. Surveys show that. If a pastor gets up and simply says, everybody, read your Bible. The people that are doing it say, great, wonderful, I'm already doing that. And some people can have different reactions and say, I don't know how, pastor. And then they get demotivated and they say, well, I'm not going to try because I don't know how. Or they hear that and they feel guilty because they don't have the habit of doing it. And they say, well, why should I even bother starting now? I'll just feel guiltier if I open it up. We will, through the course of the series, talk about how to do it, and I would just give you the encouragement, never let guilt keep you from it. You will get joy out of it when you open it up and read it. But I will also point out to this that there can be a lot of things that can be demotivational to us as we open up God's Word. A lot of things that can hinder us and hold us back. In Psalm 60, uh, verse 61, is one of many throughout Psalm 119 that points this out. It says, Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. And it's peppered throughout Psalm 119 and actually all throughout all the Psalms, you find these moments of opposition. And when we open God's word, when we intend to read God's word, when we intend to be obedient to God, brothers and sisters, expect opposition. There are always forces warring against us to draw close to God. Always. We can get discouragement. Well, we talked about discouragement from ourselves. Our own attitudes can discourage us. We can get discouragement from others around us. There was this uh, interesting interview five six years ago. Uh, TechCrunch, the uh, online, it's an internet uh, tech uh, news site, did a, an interview with Bobby Grunwald, who created Uversion. Some of you are using the Uversion Bible app on your phones, made by our biggest covenant church, Life Church, and it's free to everybody. It's just the Bible. And at the time it was second to Angry Birds in downloads, right? Angry Birds was a, you know, it's a fun game if you played it. And it was downloaded millions and millions and millions of times, making lots of money. U version, a free app, was right underneath that for a long time. It's still pretty high up on the charts. It's downloaded so many times. And the interviewer is interviewing Bobby Grunwald, who's on staff at Life Church, and she's like, so wait, let me get this straight. It's just the Bible. I mean, that's where it stops, and they're thinking, like, it's, people are down, like, it's, is there something else to it? It's it's just the Bible, and it's as popular as Angry Birds? I don't get it. But what struck me so much in it, it's really fun to watch that one, but what struck me so much in it is when Bobby Grunold pointed out that one of the motivating factors for a number of people that they've heard is that as they're riding the train, or the bus, or a plane, commuting to different places, or going, traveling for work, People actually like to have a discreet experience of not having everybody else around them know that they're reading the Bible, which was so fascinating to me. If you're reading it in your cubicle or at lunchtime in the lunchroom, sometimes people want a discreet experience because there will be opposition sometimes. There will be people who will detract and say, why are you reading that? Or make snide comments. There will be discouragement from others when we draw close to God's word the other we, there's lots of other areas of opposition i just picked out a couple that i thought of this week one is alarm clock opposition is what i'm calling it where i'm too tired to read right want to hit the snooze button i don't know if i have it in me god today to do it or right now or whatever that can get us right we can have opposition within our own bodies sometimes we can have opposition from distraction right? They're just, I, I can't set the time. I don't know when to set the time. Even when I set the time, I've got 800 things that distract me from doing it, or I'd rather do this thing first or whatever it is. We can get, we can expect opposition that way. And then frankly, we can expect boredom from some people that they just don't get engaged by the word. And if you fall in that last category that you just haven't quite gotten engaged by the word, then I think Psalm 119.63 is one of these helpful reminders. And this is where we'll, we'll land on this last point. And that it says, I'm a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. Who are your Bible buddies in life? I looked at that last night as I was reviewing the sermon again. I was like, I wonder why I picked Bible buddies. Who are your Bible buddies in life? Who are the people you can talk with about Scripture? I hope you have some in the house, right? I hope you have people that you can talk to about Scripture. I hope you have them in your family. That you can talk to. I know it's a topic of conversation around our house a lot. But if you look at Psalm 119.63, the one we just read, I'm a friend of all who fear you. The friendship there is not based on aspiration, but on action. I'm a friend of all who fear you and do your word and follow your precepts, not who just think about them and just uh, kind of loftily consider them, but who actually do and obey right? The writer who says they're a writer but never writes a book isn't really an author. The person who reads a book about what's going on in society and attends a rally but doesn't do anything positively to change is not an activist. They're just well-informed. Even the agnostic who says, I should really investigate whether I believe in God or not, but doesn't actually do it, is actually, when you get down to it, just an uninformed theist, it turns out, an apathetic theist, They kind of believe in God, but they're just not willing to put in the effort. We don't want to fall into that category of just thinkers about the word, but doers of the word, and those who are obedient to the word. And we want to hang out with those who do it. Interestingly, um, and this is an interesting evangelistic tactic, uh, Dietrich Schindler, who's a church planter in Germany, he works with a lot of people who are secular German, because that's where he's doing work. He says they're highly educated, smart, and they kind of have this, I believe in God, but I don't need to do anything about it kind of edge to them. And he actually uses James 2.19 as an evangelistic uh, tool sometimes, which says, you believe that there's one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. And he says, you know what? Demons probably have enough knowledge to teach a pretty convincing seminary class. What good is Knowledge without the action, without loving the living God. We worship a seeking God. That's good news this morning. We worship a seeking God who calls us to action. We worship a Jesus who died for his church and calls us to be his hands and feet together as his people. And if we return back to the idea of living under the word as an authority, as authoritative over us, I think it's very difficult to claim that we live under the authority of God's word when we have no accountability among God's people. When we aren't willing to live with the other people that are reading the word and learn together and do the word together. I think it's really hard to say we're living under the authority of God's word at that point. If we truly seek to live under the authority of the word, we need accountability to live it out with God's people. Uh, I, I meet once a month, I have a number of different pastors and folks I've gotten connected with finally in town, but I meet once a month with a small group of five other pastors and ministry leaders in what we call a huddle. We, we deliberately meet together to talk about evangelism and to talk about what's your evangelism temperature this month, and where did you get a chance to share Jesus, share you know, the worldview of Jesus uh, at all, talk about even an invitation to church, anything at all. Where'd you get up to bat at all within the last month? And we share stories, and then we get encouraged by those stories And sometimes you come in and your evangelism temperature is really low, but somebody has a really encouraging story and you're like, now it's higher. It's so fun. It's so encouraging. And I've discovered that if I don't do that with things like this, and I have this with other tools, with other, uh, you know, reading and and all the other stuff I do in pastoral ministry. If I don't have those checkpoints, I lose track of time and I lose track of progress. So something I think happened two weeks ago happened two months ago or two years ago. And I think I'm doing really good, but that accountability keeps us sharp in the process of doing God's word and doing it together. You are my portion, Lord. That's how we live it out, by doing it together. Reading God's word should change you, and reading God's word together should change you. Let's go to prayer right now. Lord, give us joy as we read your word. Lord, help us love you as we read your word too. You've given us this tremendous gift in revealing Yourself in the pages of Scripture. And it is loving to seek Your face. You've loved us enough to show us who You are. Help us return the love by seeking You out. Our sin has moved us far from You, but You've called us close. You've called called on us to make us holy through Your Holy Spirit. Help us open your word with eyes ready to learn, with eyes ready to to see, and with feet and hands ready to obey. God, help us love you and your word together. Amen.